All right, Jesse, last week's hypocrisy was truly infuriating. What is the story this time around? When a hardworking and devoted single mother is brutally murdered in her own home, no one can possibly imagine who would have wanted her killed. But soon, the police realize that several people close to her had motive. And when the eventual murderer or murderers are revealed, it is a shock to the entire community. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about bad plans, broken clans, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are in the midst of a binge watch and very much enjoying the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help us and help new people discover the show. Also, when you're done with your binging and you just can't help <laughs> but want some more or to support us and the show more directly, you can go over to Patreon and set up an account for anywhere from $3 or more a month. And that is at patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. But I do have to say now that we have so much new content on there and added content and extra bonus content. So if you actually are done binging, it's like a really smart thing to do. This past week, we have put out two. Andy did, would you like to say, a little teaser? Yeah, I did a throwback to Crazy Crimes from the 2000s. It was pretty fun. Yes, and I covered that big game safari hunting dentist Larry Rudolph and his wife, Bianca Rudolph. That was a doozy, Andy. That was a full-length Love Murder episode right there. It was, yeah. I was actually shocked that we saved it for Patreon, but it's like a special <laughs> gift for all of our patrons. Yes. And speaking of those wonderful patrons, we are excited to welcome a new set of you guys. Welcome to Andrea B., Nicole K., and Stacey J., Ashley P., Jiaoshin W., and Trisha. Andrea A., two Andreas, Sharon <laughs> H., and Nina S. That makes three Andreas on this podcast today. Molly G, Jennifer J, and Christopher S, and Kirsten W, and Emily F. Welcome, and welcome to all of you tuning back in or trying us out for the very first time. We are elated to have you here with us. Well, Andy, there's no way to sugarcoat this. This is a rough episode in a lot of ways, especially for the mothers out there. So I think I'm not going to give you any more spoilers or hints. We should probably just get into it. Sounds like a plan. 43-year-old Chris McGowan was deeply in love for the very first time. It had taken him a long time to meet the woman of his dreams, but she had been worth the wait. He had met Jean Domenico, his genie at work, and love had blossomed out of a deep respect and friendship. While Chris had never been married before, Jean had pretty recently ended an abusive marriage when the two had met. Jean hadn't intended to begin dating only a year or so after her divorce was finalized, maybe ever. She hadn't been seeking love when it had found her, but patient, kind Chris was so different than anyone she'd ever been with before, 
especially her ex-husband, that it had just happened. Though Chris would have married Jean in a flash, he respected that she prioritized her teenage children's well-being above all else. Her 16-year-old daughter, Nicole, and her 15-year-old son, Charlie, were her entire world. The kids had taken the strife between their parents and the divorce very hard. Jean refused to even think about having a wedding until both kids were graduated from high school and beginning to make their own way in the world. That was just like Jeannie to put others first. It made Chris love her even more. He had waited his life to meet a soulmate. A few more years was nothing. Until the day that they could be official, and despite being engaged and having been together for a little over three years, Chris and Jean lived separately. It was as much about respect for Jean's family as it was about space and peace. Trying to get two adults ready for work and two teens ready for school with only one small bathroom was chaos. On August 6, 2003, Nicole's 18-year-old boyfriend, Billy, was visiting too, so it made the already small house even more brimming with people. Chris was there constantly, though, just usually not sleeping over on the weeknights. On that particular Wednesday, he was heading over to Jean's to have a pizza dinner with the kids before Billy headed back to Connecticut. Jean was a hardworking single mother who held down three jobs. The local pizzerias, I think it was a Guido's too. We were just talking about Guido's. Oh my God, so funny. Yeah, with our uh, Patreon group. But they did a deal on Wednesdays that if you called it exactly 5 p.m., you could get like $5 large pizzas. Oh my God. So like only one person could do it. Well, I don't know if it was like within 5 to 5.30, but Chris joked that Jean was a little bit of a penny pincher, and so she was always calling right at 5 on the dot, making sure that she got the deal. And that's when they had Wednesday pizza night for the family. She's definitely allowed to be a penny pincher if she's working three jobs. Exactly. It was a nice midweek treat that did not break her very tight budget. Well, that evening, Chris was surprised to not have heard from Jean as he headed over just a little after 7.15 p.m. He had called her several times to see if he could bring anything else over, if she wanted a bottle of wine, if the kids needed any soda or anything, but she had not answered the phone. And then he had received a voicemail from Jean's daughter, Nicole, telling him that she and Billy had been running around and they were going to be late for dinner. And she wanted to call Chris because she had tried her mother first and she wasn't answering the phone. So she said, if you get this, just tell mom we're running a little late for dinner. But this was definitely strange for Chris because Jeannie Domenico was very reliable and she never missed a call from her children if she could help it. Still, Chris tried not to worry as he made his way to her house. The first thing he noticed as he approached the modest Cape Cod style house was that the dogs were still out in the yard. Now, this was something she would usually get home around 5, 5.30 and she would put the dogs out in the yard to let them do their business while she cleaned the house up. This was something that bothered Chris a lot because her teenage kids didn't really help out around the house, I think, like most teenagers. I know, but also, like, if mom's working three jobs, keeping it all together, like, we got to pick it up. I mean, no one likes doing chores. but Exactly. At a certain point when you're physically able and you understand the workload that keeping a house clean is on the parents, you just kind of do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. And so this always bothered Chris that, like, as soon as – Jeannie got home, she would have to like also go around, tidy, make everything look good again, get dinner prepared. But usually after she was done with that initial clean, she'd let the dogs back in. So the fact that they were out somewhere between 7.15 and 7.30 was a little weird. Okay. 
And then as he got to the front door, he realized that it was slightly open. Never a good sign. No. Jeannie, Chris called out. The house was eerily quiet. He walked through to the kitchen where he saw Jean's legs first on the ground. Now, this is not really computing for him right now. For some reason, she was lying face down. He then noticed the pool of blood underneath her head. So he is yelling for her to answer him, to wake up. And when he realizes that she can't, she's not getting up, he called 911. The operator would later report that Chris was crying. He thought that Jean had fallen and maybe she had hit her head on the corner of the stove. He would later say that she had been on the Atkins diet. And so while she was preparing pizza for the kids and for him, she was also making herself a separate dinner. And she'd been getting lightheaded lately. So he was worried that maybe she had fallen and hit her head somehow. But there was a lot of blood, a lot of, lot of blood. He told the operator that he didn't know what happened. He had just walked into the house. He didn't live there. The operator asked him if he had tried to revive Jean, but he said that he had been shaking too badly. So at that point, they asked him to see if she was still alive. And he said that he could not find a pulse. When the police arrived only minutes later, Chris emerged from the home shaken and relatively covered in blood for how much like he had had to touch her in this incident. He told the officers that he still believed at that point that she had fallen. But when police entered the home, it was clear that what had happened to devoted mother Jeannie was no accident. How had Chris McGowan not noticed that the living room was completely destroyed. The coffee table was broken in half. A glass door had been broken as well. Glass door? It's kind of like a sliding glass door, but it was a specific type of glass. But it's like, think a sliding glass door. And so the shards of glass were all over the floor. And the officers immediately noted the first question we always have when we have a broken window or a broken glass door, which way did that glass break? Was somebody breaking in or had it come from the inside? Yep. And they noted in this case that the glass was broken from the inside. Yeah. This was not somebody breaking in. So very quickly, they realized that Jean had very likely known her killer and perhaps let them in. And she was 100% murdered. Jean had not fallen. This was not an accident by any measure. She had not only been killed, she had been overkilled. In the kitchen, the walls, cabinets, and fridge door were covered by Jean's blood. Later, a medical examiner would conclude that Jean had been slashed and stabbed 50 times. No. Most of those injuries were to her neck and the side of her face. Oh my God. This had been a passionate, frenzied attack. Just how on earth had Chris thought that she had fallen and hit her head? Was it dark out yet? So this is summertime. This is the beginning of August. So around 7.15, I feel like it would still be light out. 100%. Daylight savings isn't until September, I think, right? October. October, yeah. Yeah. It's almost to like Alden's birthday. So it's like the very end of October, I think. Had he really come across the crime scene or had he created it? Perhaps Chris hadn't been too keen on waiting to get married after all. Was this so-called perfect couple really that happy? Chris was immediately the first suspect 
and he initially reported that 43-year-old Jean was almost universally beloved. The only enemy she had in the world was her violent ex, Anthony Kaczynskis, the father of her children, who also had a rap sheet, and most of the charges involved domestic violence towards Jean. Ah, oh, well, I'd say he's a pretty relevant suspect. Neighbors Canvas said that Jeannie lived in terror of Anthony. There were also problems with Charlie. The teen had been getting into explosive fights with his mother lately. Staying out all night, spending long stretches away, spending the night with his friends. Jeannie had reportedly worried about what Charlie was capable of in a fit of temper. So they had some pretty normal teen mom fights. But I think that she was maybe a little worried that Charlie was also potentially capable of violence. She told Chris that she was never truly worried about her son, but just in case she would lock the steak knives, the kitchen knives away in her room, just in case. Um, scary. She also had a phobia of knives specifically, which I think is probably an intuition about how her life ended in the long run. Feels about safety in general. Yes. Yeah. 16-year-old Nicole had been Jeannie's best friend. She was an honor student. She was in the choir. The two were so close that they were the envy of many of Jean's friends who longed for a similar relationship with their own daughters. So it seemed like Nicole, with her good attitude and good grades, was a real long shot in this. But what about her 18-year-old boyfriend, Billy, whom she had met online? Did they know anything about him or his past? Very quickly, the police were able to see that this kind and loving woman who didn't, quote, have an enemy in the world, did have a number of people close to her who could have killed her. The supposedly devoted fiancé who had no alibi for the two hours between the time that he had left work and had allegedly found Jean's body, the violent ex with the rap sheet mostly for hurting Jean, and a bone to pick with her, the explosive teenage son, and the loving daughter with her mysterious 18-year-old boyfriend, who we would come to find out had a very troubled childhood. Oh my God. It would not actually take the police long to crack this case, even though it seems like there was a whole cast of characters that could have committed this crime. It would come swiftly on the heels of two stunning confessions. The fallout from the crime would leave a community stunned and two families at odds. This is a case of betrayal, of the bonds of love being broken, terrible mistakes, the hardships of raising teenagers, and a passionate first love gone fatally awry. My primary source today is Because You Loved Me by M. William Phelps. Oh, I yes, I think on when my last Patreon I said we were going to be coming back to Phelps. I'm actually I think in two weeks' time is going to be covering another one of his books. So I also watched a show. I think it's originally from Investigation Discovery called Wicked Attraction, and this one was season three, episode ten, called Live Free or Die. And I think that's because the murder took place in Nashua, New Hampshire. So we got a New England murder going on here. Which, by the way, I always thought that there should be a Boston true crime show called like Wicked Crimes or like something like that with like two people with like heavy Boston accents talking about true crime. This isn't what you're going to do for me today. I wish I could, but we all know I'm 
total trash at accents, but it would be so fun. I miss your accents. I wish we could take a poll <laughs> to see who else misses your poll. accents. <laughs> okay, so if this case sounds familiar to you, you might have also seen it on Snapped as well, but I could not get it to stream for me because it was from 2013 and they're like, too old. Tilt. Rude. So rude. So let's start by talking about our dearly departed Jean Domenico and see if we can get to the bottom of who killed her and why. Jean was born in Malden, Massachusetts. This is very New England. Yes. On August 29th, 1959. At the time of her murder, she was only weeks away from her 44th birthday. Jean came from a close-knit Italian family, and she was good-hearted, kind, and people described her as lively from an early age. They said that she had, like, the type of mom that was the one that looked out for all the kids and, like, served them Kool-Aid on hot days. So it was a nice family. In her 20s, Jean fell in love with a hot-headed single father named Anthony Kazinkis. His daughter Amy Beth described Jean as a wonderful stepmother and said, quote, Jean was a very compassionate person. She always reached out to everybody, no matter what. She took care of her kids, and she worked herself to the bone. The couple went on to have Nicole and Charlie together before the relationship became plagued by domestic violence. (sighs) I guess the cops had to be called several times. I did not get details about every instance that this happened, but it was obviously not a good relationship. Even without Jean involved, Anthony managed to find himself in trouble. It seemed that he had an aggressive edge to part of his personality. I guess at some point he was hunting and a man approached him and he fired a warning shot at him or towards him in some way. And he was immediately arrested because the man who was approaching him was a police officer. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. After several turbulent years, Jean and Anthony divorced in 2000. I think that they had separated maybe a year or two sooner than that, but it was officially done in 2000. But friends of Jean said that she lived with constant anxiety about her ex, getting custody of her children, coming around when she wasn't home because she was working so often. She would often call her neighbors to check on her children. Yeah. And she said that her primary concern, or they said that her primary concern was that her ex would be coming around. Yeah, for sure. They also said that even recently, Anthony had been harassing her about money and about some child-related situations. Did he have any custody? He did not. She had 100% full custody. So I think she was just afraid that... You know, the kids were getting a little older. Maybe he could influence them in some way so that they could choose to go live with him. Because I think at a certain age, depending on whatever laws are going on in the state, a kid can choose to live with a parent. So despite all of this, Jean managed to work countless jobs to provide for her teenagers and also still was a beacon of hope and goodness for her many friends and neighbors. She was working at Oxford Health Plans, which I believe is an insurance company or something of the like when she was killed, and that was also where she met Chris McGowan. Everyone said that what was really amazing about Jean was that she did everything she could to put food on the table and no job was beneath her. It didn't matter if it was taking care of her kids. So she worked part-time jobs at the Nashua Post Office. She once worked as a cashier at McDonald's. She cleaned houses. She would babysit. She also was a school aide for many years, and how she got into that profession was emblematic of who Jean was. Jean had been playing with her kids in a condominium pool in 1991 
when she was approached by a woman named Jen, who would ultimately become a very close friend until the end of Jean's life. Jen was extremely pregnant at the time, and she had observed Jeannie with her kids, watching her with her at that time, small children. And she just kept thinking, what a wonderful mother. She later told M. William Phelps that Jeannie was kind, firm, and it was just so obvious that she had a genuine love for her children. After making Jean's acquaintance, she asked her if she would consider babysitting her unborn child because she was a teacher. So she said, look, you'll get summers and school holidays off because I'll obviously want to be with my kid. But it's a little nerve wracking. You know how it is to think about somebody else being around your child that much and having witnessed when Jean didn't even realize that she was looking, how she was with her children and how she treated children in general. Jen felt safe asking her that. So Jean ended up agreeing. At first, she was like, it's a lot because I have my own two little kids. But she ended up agreeing to it, and they ended up having a lifelong relationship. She cared for Jen's baby, Emily, as if she were her own. And soon it became apparent that Emily had special needs. By the time she was three, Emily could barely walk, and she was not speaking at all. Oh, no. Yeah. Jen and Jeannie took her to several specialists, but they still failed to find an official diagnosis for little Emily. Jean patiently and lovingly worked with Emily, teaching her sign language and pushing her to achieve. Jen talked about how Jeannie was the one who could get through to her, who had this loving way of pushing her forward in a way that made her want to achieve without taxing the child. Emily completely blossomed with confidence. And when it came time for Emily to go to school, to go to public school, yeah. both Jean and Jen were very worried about her losing that one-on-one -on -one attention. So they talked about it many times. And eventually, Jean actually went to Jen and she's like, you know what? I am not going to let Emily go one day without the attention and care she deserves. She went back to school to get trained as a school aide and became Emily's full-time paraprofessional. Wow. She literally would put her on the school bus and then get in her car, follow the school bus, go to school, and she sat by Emily's side every single day from her very first day of kindergarten until the end of second grade when Emily no longer needed her. Whoa. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And she just didn't need an aide anymore? She was totally fine? I don't know. <laughs> Actually, the, M. William Phelps didn't get, like, deep into Emily's development because I had questions myself. But it seemed like at least there was paraprofessionals that were trained enough to be able to take over her role. In a comforting way for her, yeah. In a comforting way. At that point, Jean and Jen felt comfortable with Jean being able to leave that profession. But there was, like, a million stories about Jean just, like, being awesome and always being considerate of other people. There was another friend who spoke to the author about how she actually helped their child get a diagnosis of autism and help them find resources for their children in ways that they hadn't even imagined at the time. This is very early 2000s, and it might have even happened in the late 90s, where there wasn't as much awareness about being on the spectrum. So there was that person that said that she was instrumental in finding resources for their child. And then even their neighbor at the time of Jean's death said that there was just this loving light about her that she called everyone honey. 
and it was just so warm. Yep. And she was a nail technician and she said that one time she convinced Jean to come in to get a manicure. She's like working a million jobs. She doesn't have time for that type of luxury. And after she had finished doing her nails and given her a hand massage, Jean started massaging her hands. And she said, you work so hard and you are giving hand massages all day. Let me give you a hand massage now. (laughs) And she talked about how like Jean would be like, I'm making pina coladas. I'll send Nicole over with one for you and stuff and like send over a drink. And I don't know. She just sounded like a very loving person. Well. Because of all of this, everything she had been through, how hardworking she was, how kind she was, it seemed like when she met Chris McGowan at work in 2001 and the two began dating that she had finally gotten her happy ending. They look completely beaming in every picture I've seen of the two of them. A former coworker said that they truly seemed like the perfect couple. Quote, I have never seen two people so positive and upbeat in my entire life. Yeah, they just complimented each other perfectly. Yes. Chris was very appreciative of everything that Jean was and how she acted in the world and that she was so giving of herself and especially to her children. Yeah. Did not turn him away. It wasn't like, oh, there's less for me. It was like, wow, this is incredible that I get to be with such a giving person. Chris described Jeannie as an angel and he said, not just to me though, to anyone she came into contact with. But Jean was also absolutely Chris's angel. He had MS, and he told Jeannie early on in their relationship. In typical Jeannie fashion, she had learned everything she possibly could about the disease and all the ways that she could help Chris and make him more comfortable. However, Chris made it very clear that she never made MS a big deal or a big part of their relationship. She was just very matter-of-factly learning exactly what she could do to help him while saying, well, this is just part of our life. Like, We'll get through anything together and did not make it a huge like, oh, you poor thing or like some weird part of their relationship, if you know what I mean. Yep. Quite simply, she just loved him. MS or no MS, it didn't matter. Chris had never felt so loved, so taken care of in his entire life. So was it possible that he had killed her, his angel? And if so, why? Yeah, what's the motivating factor here? I'm not seeing it. No, there's no money on the line if he had killed Jeannie. Well, from the get-go, the police kind of thought he did. Chris had a couple investigatory strikes against him just from the get-go, just from, let's say, Detective 101. He was the victim's significant other, and he was also the person who had discovered the body. Yeah. So if you're doing a checklist, that's just like two checks against you right there. Yeah, but someone has to discover the body. And I feel like for the most part, it's not necessarily the person who murdered. Like I'd say with our episodes, it's not, I'd say 10% maybe are the people who murdered them. Yes, I would agree with that percentage. He had seemed confused and he was a little strange at the scene as though he didn't completely grasp that Jeannie was dead. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, that he had somehow missed that she'd been stabbed and slashed 50 times. Now... This is just goes to show, because I, I don't think you believe in his guilt, Andy. I'm just picking no, up on that. Yeah. But this is just to show, sometimes we talk about like, oh, they were really weird at the scene. I think there was something we were talking about real, oh, it was Narcy. We were talking about Narcy recently and how she was like, I think he had a heart attack, but clearly he was like tied up and everything was terrible. Yeah. But this goes to show you can never know because he is walking into the scene and he is just, his brain is not making sense of the fact that she had been murdered. 
No. He is only seeing her. He's seeing his beloved who is so kind and so good to everyone. And she is not somebody who has a lot of money or somebody would kill for money. So I think the only thing that made sense to him was that he knew she was lightheaded and that she had been kind of not feeling great lately. So he's like, oh, she must have fallen and hit her head. That's the only thing that's making sense to him. He's not making excuses for her death, like saying she had a heart attack. He's actually like, his brain isn't connecting the dots at all. And is there so much blood too that you really can't, like if you weren't a detective, could you like not know what was going on? Because I feel like we've covered a few of those too where like people are looking, but you just still don't know what's happened because there's just so much blood. I honestly just think that he was so concerned about her, he didn't even see anything else. And I do not think his brain was noticing things like a detective would because he was not objective. He was in love with this person. He said that he didn't even really realize that she was dead until after he was already talking to 911. And he realized that her eyes were just staring out. But even while he was calling 911, he was like, send an ambulance. He thought that there was coming back from this. <sighs> I know, it's horrible. So they very much thought that he was a suspect. By the way, spoiler alert, he wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't the person who killed her. I think you guys had already figured that out. But he said that he doesn't even really remember being considered a suspect or being treated like one. Yeah, no. I mean, I feel like that would have been ruthless if they were mean well, to him. There was like during when he thought about it, there was like one point where he had gone outside or something and they'd like followed him. And he was like, oh, that's weird. But like they at that point thought he was maybe going to be tossing a murder weapon or something. So yeah. they were like on him, which they have to be. Good. Of course yeah. they should. Good. But he didn't even really realize it because he was still thinking of just Gene. Yeah, but that means that they were doing their job without being offensive to someone who yes. was mourning and working through an emotional situation. So that's, I think, good on them. Yeah, especially given that he had no alibi between the time he left work at 4.30 and when he had found the body sometime after 7.15. So in his interview, Chris told invest and also he had to be told that Gene was murdered because he still, when he got to the police station, still thought it was some horrible accident. So they were like, okay, we have to tell you the truth. Even though you found her, your girlfriend or your fiance, she was murdered and she was stabbed a number of times. And they're trying to ask him as the person who in the last three years was closest to her in the world. And if he's a suspect, they also love to play that game. Well, who do you think could have done it if it wasn't you? And so at first he's like, oh my gosh, nobody. Nobody would have wanted to kill Jeannie. She was the most wonderful giving person in the entire world. And he's like, oh shit. I know exactly who it was. Like, it came to him like a lightning bolt. He was like, it's Anthony. It's her freaking ex. Like, she's been so nervous about him, and he treated her like shit. Like, it's definitely him. And now, he, like, he's getting angry, and they're like, we already are aware of her ex-husband. Because they had actually canvassed all the neighbors. And Jeannie was friends with a lot of the neighbors. Of course. So they were like, oh, my gosh, she was super worried about her ex-husband. So they're like, we're already on that one. Now, can you think about anyone else? And he was like, oh, okay. This one really hurts to say it because he loved Charlie, the 15-year-old. He went to all of his baseball games. The kid played baseball. He was involved in his life. He was really wanting to be the father figure in Charlie's life. Of course. But he was like, they've been fighting a lot lately. And there was a lot of anger issues in this whole 
family, in the divorce, everything that had occurred. I saw an interview with Nicole later, and she said that as wonderful as Jean was, it sounds like neither of her parents really, their parents, really talked about what was going on or talked about feelings or talked about how to move through this. And she didn't say as much, but my context is because Jean was like barely keeping her head above water working all the jobs she was working. And so I think that both of the young kids had very complicated feelings about their family and their situation at that time. So in any case, Charlie had apparently been having some issues and he had been not wanting to stay at the home. He had been staying at friends' houses. They had been getting into fights. And this is when Chris mentioned that she had a phobia of knives and that though she never said explicitly it was because she was scared that Charlie was actually going to hurt her. And to be fair, Chris had never witnessed Charlie being physical with Jean. He knew it was because she specifically was worried that a fight could escalate in some way that could end up with him hurting her, maybe. No, it totally makes sense to me. And also, he is Anthony's kid, right? Exactly. They didn't explicitly state this in M. William Phelps' book, but I would imagine if he had a rap sheet for abusing Jean, that this might have been something the children potentially could have witnessed in the home. Yeah. I don't know that for a fact. Even if they didn't witness it physically, hearing someone talk to your parent or your mom that way, it's just like, that's traumatizing in and of itself. Exactly. So Chris was like, I still don't think it was Charlie. However, I can't think of anyone other than Anthony and Charlie. And then they did ask about Nicole. And he said that Nicole was a model daughter, a model student. The two of them had been very close. They had their typical teenage tiffs, but Nicole was in general a very good girl. What about Nicole's boyfriend? Well, we don't know anything about Nicole's boyfriend at this point. Okay, the cops don't know at all. Okay. Yes. And so he did mention, he's like, also Nicole's boyfriend is here, but they did not spend that much time together because he lived, I think it was like something like 108 miles away in Connecticut. So they were not seeing each other all the time, given that Nicole at that point, I don't think was driving. I do not know if she had her driver's license or she had access to a car at that point. Okay. And I think Billy had just gotten a car and that's why he was visiting. Billy is a big mystery at this point. Could he have done something? Now, who would you think is number one suspect at this point? I mean, I would say Anthony because he already has a rap sheet. Yes. And they thought so as well because their gut instincts was... That Chris was telling them the truth. Yeah, of course. That was the feeling they got when they interviewed him. So, of course, the next biggest suspect is Anthony. But Anthony did come in for an interview. He was a straight shooter and he had a solid alibi. I don't recall exactly what it was, but it seemed like numerous witnesses had seen him in a public place. So there was no way it was Anthony. Okay. I'm sure that they like deeply cross-checked that. They deeply cross-checked it. So we've got the potentially violent teenage son. Now we have the supposedly model daughter, Nicole. And Nicole and Jeannie had been exceptionally close. Nicole was shy. She had had a difficult time with her peers. So she had had a traditionally academically successful middle school life and high school life. She had never given her mother any problems in those areas. 
But for whatever reason, Nicole did not have a lot of friends and that when they had ended up moving to the school district that they ended up in after the divorce, apparently Nicole had been pretty badly bullied to a point where a friend had said that Jean was very angry at the school system because there was an incident in which some mean girl had pantsed Nicole. Are you fucking serious? Yeah, well, it gets worse. I think they were in the school hallway, so there's people in the hallway. Yeah, why is the school not monitoring that? Yeah, and Nicole hadn't been wearing underwear. Oh, my God. So it's made all the more worse because of that, obviously. And Jean was very concerned about Nicole. And all of this situation, all of the bullying and the anger about the divorce and her parents' relationship and everything that had occurred had really sent her very inward. When she was 14, she had met her current boyfriend, Billy, who was 17 at the time, in a chat room. And the two had become obsessively close very quickly. Jesse, there are so many people out there working so hard every day and still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way that paychecks are distributed. Absolutely. Life doesn't happen biweekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. This product just makes so much sense to me and a way to give people more choice and more control. Yes, it's a tool for people to be more self-sufficient without falling into debt traps. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, daily max and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. There is nothing worse than when your dog's food doesn't sit well. What can you feed them that they'll gobble up and will help them thrive? You need to hear about Nom Nom. Nom Nom delivers fresh dog food with every portion personalized to your dog's needs, so you can bring out their best. Nom Nom's made with real, whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to bloating and low energy. That's because Nom Nom uses the latest science and insights to make real, good food for dogs. Their nutrient-packed recipes are crafted by board-certified veterinary nutritionists made fresh and shipped free to your door. Nom Nom's already delivered over 40 million meals to good dogs like yours, inspiring millions of clean bowls and tail wags. Nom Nom's ingredients are cooked individually and then mixed because science tells us that every protein, carb, and veggie has different cook times and methods. This gives your dog efficient energy and packs in the vitamins and minerals they need, truly getting the most out of every bite. 
Oh my gosh, this is such a big deal for our family. My dog Artie, Artemis, just turned one. And in our first year, we have learned so much about Bernie's Mountain Dog's stomachs. We have learned about what she will and will not eat. And we've actually tried out a lot of different types of raw food diets. And it's so hard to find one that actually looks like food but does not take forever to make, like where you're actually, you know, making all of the food yourself, which we did try and it's impossible (laughs) with any sort of time frame. (laughs) It's just so hard to, I mean, you'd literally be serving two additional children if you cooked for Artie. (laughs) That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So that's why we're really excited to have Nom Nom as a partner that really cares and really works for our dog. I feel like also if you don't even have a big Bernese Mountain Dog, I remember when I had Edie the Chihuahua, do you remember? And she had really bad tummy issues and I tried everything and we ended up doing raw food towards the end of her sweet little life that we had together. And I wish that there was something like this that actually took a mindful approach to how to prepare food for dogs and I really do think it could have helped her a lot. Absolutely. Plus, Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Go right now for 50% off your no-risk two-week trial at trynom.com slash lovemurder. Spelled trynom.com slash lovemurder for 50% off. trynom.com slash lovemurder. So Chris was saying if there were any conflicts between Jean and Nicole, it was mostly pretty normal teenage stuff. Jeannie had three jobs and needed help around the house. Nicole and Charlie didn't seem to want to pull their weight. And lately, Jean had been concerned about Nicole's intense young love. She did not want Nicole getting too serious too fast. In August, she had just barely turned 16. She turned 16 in June. And she wanted to spend significant amounts of time with Billy, like go there for the weekend or something, which she wasn't going to let her 16-year-old daughter do, clearly. Not to mention that, we talked about the tight budget that they were on, and Nicole had run up a $500 phone bill chatting with Billy for hours on end. So she doesn't have a job. I think that Nicole got a job. I think she might have had one at the time of the murder. So that she could pay off this phone bill. Good. Yeah, I mean, that's like anything recreational like that should be something that kids who can work pay for. (laughs) Like, especially if your mom's working three jobs. Exactly. While the police were questioning Chris, Charlie had been dropped off at the house by a friend. And then Billy and Nicole had also come home separately. They were together, but, you know, they came home separately from Charlie. And they all obviously found that their house was a crime scene and crawling with police. When the teenagers were notified that their mother had been killed, the responses were normal and, of course, very sad. Okay. Charlie was shocked. He was absolutely stunned. I mean, this is a very suburban neighborhood. This is a very normal mom. She's hardworking. She's a hardworking single mom, but this is not anything out of the order. It's a normal neighborhood. This is just not, you wouldn't think that your mother was ever going to get killed. Yeah, or like stabbed in your home. Yes. And Nicole burst into tears right away. She could not stop crying. And all three of the teenagers, 15-year-old Charlie, 16-year-old Nicole, and 18-year-old Billy were put in separate police cruisers, as was 
the protocol and brought down to the station for questioning. When Chris was leaving, he was allowed to see Charlie and comfort him. And Chris was a little upset because he asked where the kids were going to go, basically. And they said that they were going to go with their father. And he was like, that was the last thing Gene wanted. They should be with me. But he had no legal standing. He was not even married to Gene. It wouldn't have made sense. And the kids seemed comfortable going with their dad. So at that point, he saw Charlie in the hall of the police station. And he said, hey, are you going to be okay? Are you sure? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to be fine with my dad. He gave him a hug. And he said, it's going to be okay, even though Chris later said he knew, obviously, it wouldn't. Nothing was going to ever be okay again. But he was trying to comfort this kid that he cared so much about. And he later said that Charlie looked at him with such a strange, direct in his eyes stare that he knew that Charlie had something to tell him. So he's like, Charlie, what is it? And eventually Charlie looked at him and he said, he did it. And Chris was like, who, what are you talking about? And he said, Billy did it. He was talking about Billy Sullivan, his sister's boyfriend. And he said that he believed Billy had killed his mother. Jeez. At that point, Chris was like, no, I don't think so. That's no, it can't be. Because, uh, you know, your whole brain is going to have to be some gang-related violence, which I guess there was a little bit. This is the early 2000s. There was a little rising gang violence in Nashua at this point. Okay. So he's thinking it has to be a stranger. That's what you want to believe. You want to believe that it's just somebody. You don't want to believe it's somebody you know. So Chris was like, I don't think so at first. But even so, even if Chris doesn't think so at this point, I think we should probably spend a little time talking about our teenage Romeo, Billy Sullivan. 18-year-old Billy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, Billy had a really screwed up childhood. He was born on March 24th, 1985, and he was about five weeks early, which is about the amount I was early. Were you he six? Was just, I was born at 34 and a half weeks, so I was like five and a half weeks. I think my situation was a little bit different from Billy's insofar as his mother would later admit that she drank and smoked cigarettes every single day of her pregnancy. No. Yes, she said that she would drink a six-pack of beer a day and sometimes more. Billy's dad drank even more than that, and he was terribly abusive towards Billy's mother. As a baby, Billy was subjected to a lot of horrible fights and violence, including a time when he was only 18 months old. And it sounded like they were both drinking, both of his parents, but his dad a lot more. And she had been holding the 18-month-old when Billy's dad attacked the mother, resulting in 17 stitches to Pat, that's the mother's name, Pat's face, and Billy, having had just been in her arms, also sustained some injuries. Okay, so he's arrested. I don't really know what happened with that situation, if Pat revealed that it was her husband who had done that to her or not, because... It seemed like he was still in their life for a while after that. Ugh. Billy's mom eventually got sober or soberish, at Good. least enough. Yes. And she did end up having, I believe, two of Billy's younger sisters, but that was not the end of Billy's trauma. The family lived in what Pat described as a welfare motel. And at four years old, Billy witnessed the entire hotel burn down. He had been terrified at that point that his family or his friends were trapped inside, being burned alive. Even at four, he was worried about that. 
And he began at that point to have vivid nightmares about death and very morbid thoughts for a four-year-old child. Billy's dad did leave for good. I think Pat left him for good by the time he was five. But that didn't seem to help Billy's situation mentally at all. He began to get extremely violent towards his younger sisters. He once cut off all of his two-year-old sister's hair with scissors. At five, he began talking about suicide. By seven or eight, he had attempted suicide and began to spend long stints in psychiatric hospitals. Oh, no. And Charlie knew all of this? I don't think Charlie knew any of this. Oh, he didn't? I think he just thought that Billy did it because of some gut instinct or maybe something he had overheard with his sister. I don't even know entirely how much Nicole knew about this at this point. I think she knew that he had had a very challenging upbringing and she was relating to him, I think. Oh, I'm sure that it was part of the reason that she loved him so much was because he needed actual real love and comfort. I have to say, though, it did seem like when Billy was being treated and when he was medicated, he was a totally different kid. He was bright. He was articulate. He did well in school. He held down a nearly full-time job. He was a line cook manager at McDonald's, and he was almost fully supporting his mother and two younger sisters by the time he was 17. Wow. So he had gone through a lot of psychiatric help, and as long as he was on his meds, he was a superstar. I mean, he was really going above and beyond and felt very proud to take care of his family. So that was the time he met Nicole online. So he like had overcome all of this yes, hardship. Yes, of course. Yeah. That's a, a wonderful thing to be proud of somebody. Just because somebody has mental illness does not mean that they're necessarily going to be a dangerous person. If they're seeking out treatment and they're going to therapy, that's a wonderful thing. But when Billy was off his meds and not in therapy, he was prone to erratic and violent behavior. He would fly off the handle at the smallest provocation, and he was completely unpredictable. His sister said that it was hard to know also when he stopped taking his meds because he would lie about it. And for a certain amount of time between stopping taking them and an incident happening, they would have no idea because he seemed very convincing. He also put obsessive energy into his romantic relationships. He had met Nicole online in May of 2002 when he was 17 and Nicole was only 14. She was, I believe at that point, just a couple months or maybe a month and a half shy of 15. Okay. Nicole had always been insecure about her looks and weight. Obviously, she had been bullied. She had been harassed. She had been witness to her parents' horrible marriage, and she no longer had her father in her life. She had a lot of anger. So I saw an interview with her later on, and she talks about how she was angry. She did not have any friends. She felt extremely isolated, and as much as she completely loved her mother and knew how much her mother was doing for her, she didn't feel like she was getting the attention that she wanted. It sounds like Jean was very busy. She wasn't having the time that, of course, I'm sure she would have loved to be able to give to her children because she was busy trying to provide for them. And there was just this deep emotional hole in Nicole that Billy filled completely. I mean, he was showering her with compliments and affection and 
He wanted to talk to her all the time. They were online or on the phone 100% of the day. After only four days of speaking online, Billy began to tell Nicole he was in love with her. He loved her deeply. He's love bombing her. When she sent him photos of herself and she had always not felt great about how she looked, he told her over and over again how beautiful she was how he couldn't believe she didn't already have a boyfriend or have 10 boyfriends because she was just so stunning. And I think the thing that's so painful about being a parent is that you can tell your kid that they're beautiful every single day forever, but there's something about being a parent where you're kind of just an extension of them. Yeah. It's like as if they were telling themselves they were beautiful. Like, it doesn't matter. It's like, of course you have to tell me that. You're my parent. So Jean could tell Nicole... Every single day, she was gorgeous, and she was smart, and she was great, but it didn't matter. But when Billy said it, it was heard. Of course. Yeah, it felt like one person in the world was saying, I see you. I see who you really are. I see you're not like everybody else. And the problem was, was that when they got into this very serious Romeo and Juliet situation and they were talking about planning a life together and when they would get married and when they would have kids. Nicole, I think, did try to talk to her mom about how serious this relationship was. And Jean was like, oh, you're just a kid in love. You're a teenager in love. This is so typical. It's just so everyone has this experience. Like, you just need to not get, like, carried away. You're not going to, like, go and marry this guy. Like, don't do anything serious because... Everyone feels like this. This is typical teenage stuff. And Nicole was screaming on the inside, I am not a typical teenager. Stop saying I'm typical. Stop saying I'm average. I'm different and special. And the only one who could see it is Billy. But it's true. Like all the things that Gina is saying <laughs> are true. But like we have to pretty much figure out a different way to say it where it doesn't frustrate the kids. Because it's like you have to, I don't know, it's weird. You have to like remove your personal experience, A, but then B, you have to try to remember like how big and serious those first loves felt, even though they don't end up feeling like anything like your real love, your true love that you find later. It's so funny that there's such a disconnect because on one hand, you have the teenager being like, you have no idea how I'm feeling because you've never felt anything like this in your life. You're so old and boring, <laughs> never loved. And then you have the adult being like, you are going to get to my age and you're barely going to remember this guy's name. Like, you're being crazy. Let's not be crazy here. But it doesn't matter because it's what they're feeling at that moment. And what Nicole was feeling was an absence of love and Billy was right there to fill her well. Yeah, but it's hard because it seems like Jean was loving to her. Oh, absolutely. She absolutely was. But I mean, I know about this when this is not the same thing. But you know, when your toddler, your preschooler has some sort of like complete meltdown about something that's like, like the plate is the wrong color. <laughs> like you gave them the wrong sippy cup. It's like, no, I wanted the purple one. And it's like so important to them. And I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever like heard in my life. There's no difference between the purple and the pink sippy cup. But then I'm like, okay, I'm hearing you. You really want the other sippy cup. But unfortunately, we didn't bring the other sippy cup. So while we're here, this is the cup you can have. And when we get home, you can have the other cup. You have to like suspend everything you know because their brains are different. Yeah. They're emotionally and mentally and biologically not able to have the reasoning that we have. And it has to be the same thing with teenagers, but heightened because of hormones. 
Yes, and also <laughs> as, think about Jean, who's just emerging from a bad relationship and exhausted from working three jobs, that when there's these big fights about some random 18-year-old boy who she met online, you're kind of like, can we not? Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. So by early 2003, she has a 16-year-old who's talking about marrying this guy. She also wanted to visit Billy alone to go to Connecticut and stay with his family for a week or weekend or something. And Jean was like, absolutely not. She's like, but look, I don't want you to feel like you can't meet him. So Jean was like, I will take you to Connecticut. They ended up meeting for the first time on like an eight-hour date that Jean was there for everything. And then after that, they would meet halfway and Jean would usually drive Nicole and let them be alone for a little while and then drive her back home. And after they had been seeing each other for a while, she did allow Billy to come for a weekend or a long weekend and he had to sleep on the couch, obviously. But there were some concerning signs about this relationship. It seemed like we hear two different things from people that knew Jean and Nicole and that side of the family. It seemed like Billy was extremely controlling, that he was very demanding of Nicole, demanding that she be somewhat subservient to him, that she acquiesced to his desires. From Billy's side of the family, it seems like Nicole was obsessed with him and that she followed him around like a puppy dog. So it was all her doing. He wasn't making her do anything that she was willingly doing all of these things. We do know that it was frustrating for Jean because she said, you're going to sleep in your room and he's going to sleep on the couch. But she would come downstairs and literally Nicole would be sleeping on the floor next to the couch where he was sleeping. And other people reported that if he went to the bathroom, she would follow him and wait outside and vice versa. Like that they were like unhealthfully linked together. Yeah, it's like very codependent. Yes. As Jean tried desperately to create totally reasonable boundaries, being like, you can't do overnights where I'm not there. You can't ring up $500 long distance bills. You can't talk all night on the phone when you have school the next day. Yeah, she's 16. She's 16 years old. Very reasonable things. That is when the fights started, which Nicole and Jean had never fought before. Nicole had never been in trouble with her mother. She was definitely the easy kid. Yeah, but this totally tracks. Of course, it would be about a boy. Yes, it does. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) The smiling, good-natured girl who had been her mother's best friend turned into a sullen, angry teen who hated her mother and school and only lived for interactions with Billy. And she even says that, that she had been defined by her performance in school before Billy, but she felt like she had nothing else. And then after Billy, it was just Billy. The conflict would reach a fever pitch in the spring and early summer of 2003 when Jean hit the roof about the phone bill. And at that point, Nicole had asked her mother over the summer that she turned 16 if she could go to permanently live in Connecticut with Billy and his mother and sisters. Yeah, I mean, these requests are kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, can I get a job so I can save money so I could do a weekend trip this summer or a weekend trip every other month this summer? Or so, You know what I mean? There's, there's happy mediums on this. Like every two weeks, can I have a weekend trip? That would be amazing. Well, Nicole had written Jean a letter in which she stated that she had no friends in Nashua. She was oh. miserable at home. 
She no longer wanted to live with Jean. She said that if she was allowed to move to Connecticut, their mother-daughter relationship would vastly improve. And the things that they had fought about, the phone bill would be greatly reduced. She wrote this in the letter. Nicole ended the letter by writing, my fate lies in your hands. Please just let me be happy. So Chris said that when Jean read this letter, she was like, are you joking me? She wants to move out so we'll not fight about a phone bill? Like, this is ridiculous. It's her daughter. It's her daughter. So she went to her and she said, no way. Absolutely not. You are 16 years old. You are my child. And you are not living with anyone else until you turn 18. And you then can decide what you want to do, and who you want to live with, but not for another two years. Until then, you're under my roof and you're under my rules. And she wants the best for her. Like, you need to stay in the school where I can help you and, like, be at home and get sleep and, I mean, all the things. Yes. Billy tried to appeal to Jeannie as well. He wrote letters to her and begged to be allowed to have Nicole stay with him. He, at that point, was like, okay, so maybe she can't come live with us forever, but what if she just lived here for the rest of the summer? She can come back for school. And Jean laughed. Chris said that when she read his letter, she said, quote, give me a break. She told both Billy and Nicole that there was no way, not a chance of Nicole getting permission to stay with Billy for an extended period of time. Or vice versa. She wasn't going to let him come live there anyway, which he wasn't inclined to do anyway because he had the job at McDonald's and he was supporting his family, which also shows you, though, that he expected her to come live his life. He wasn't even trying to live there. M. William Phelps wrote about this conflict between the mother and daughter and Billy. And so it seemed that whatever Billy and Nicole had asked for, they were laughed at and told no. To them, it was as if their love was some sort of joke to everyone. Nobody saw how their lives revolved around each other. What else could they do? Whatever they said, any idea they mentioned was quashed by Jean. She just wasn't getting it. I know you kind of have to like do appreciate how big their feelings are, like teens in general. Yes. Their feelings are so big. But I can't imagine like even just in my workload now, which is nothing compared to what Jean is doing or was doing, having to have that extra energy to understand it. It is. And that's, I mean, even like in our limited experience as parents now, it takes a lot of energy to put yourself in their mindset to say like, this seems like not a big deal to me that they have the wrong cup or whatever it is they're having a crisis about, but it's a big deal to them. And that's like the mindset you have to put yourself in when it's just like, oh, dear God, this is like a lot about a cup or whatever it is, you know? It's taxing. And Jean really was, though, trying to make Nicole happy. On June 5th, 2003, Nicole celebrated her 16th birthday, and Jean threw her daughter a party with pizza, cake, ice cream, and SpongeBob SquarePants stickers. Nicole's big gift was that Jean had upgraded her phone plan, the house's phone plan. You could call whoever you wanted any hour of the day, there was no upcharge, no more long-distance charges. That's really nice. Nicole was really excited about this. She felt like her mom was finally giving her a real gift that she wanted. But she wrote in her journal later that she was immediately then pissed off because her mother followed up the gift by saying, but by the way, you still have to repay the $500 that you rang up. Yeah, but that makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to me. <laughs> I'm like gone from... 
full like teenager mode to mom mode where like now I'm getting farther away from understanding teenagers but I feel like just like a decade ago I was like closer to like understanding teenagers <laughs> yeah I know I've always kind of had the parent cap on my head with that you type are of stuff such a mom yeah Nathaniel's the same way too I'm like if you guys need like teenage ideas just bounce them off yeah. me because I'm like <laughs> forever young over here yeah no that makes sense because that it's not taking back it's not like Jean didn't have to pay that five hundred dollars like, you're never going to learn if you don't pay that $500. And $500 is a couple weeks. And that's – I didn't even adjust that for inflation. So it's a lot more today because this is in 2003 money. Okay. Yep. So I don't even know what it would be, but it would be a lot more than $500, which is a stretch for a woman that was, like, calling to get the deal for the $5 pizza on Wednesday. The fact that she indefinitely is increasing the ability for you to, like, chat with him whenever is amazing. That's a great gift. Yeah. So she said she still doesn't get me. It doesn't matter that she gave me this phone plan. She wrote in her journal that she hated her mother. Her journal entries reveal that Nicole's entire world revolved around Billy at this point. She believed God had put him in her life so that she wasn't living in constant hell, she wrote. That they were true soulmates. She wrote, quote, I live my life for him. She would literally go around and say, today when I went through this thing at school, I was like, what would Billy do? It was defining her entire life at this point. And it would seem, it would seem at least, that Billy felt very similarly. In July of 2003, his mother co-signed on a loan so that Billy could get a car. On August 1st, 2003, which was almost exactly 20 years ago when this episode comes out, Billy pulled into Nicole's driveway for a surprise visit. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Sometimes in life, we're faced with tough choices, and there's not necessarily a clear path forward. Absolutely. And at every stage in life, it can be something different. What to study, what career to pursue after school, where to live, what to look for in a partner, how to balance kids and jobs and so on and so forth, pretty much seemingly forever. <laughs> Man, what to look for in a partner is so hard and something we talk about <laughs> All the time on this show. Yes, yes. Whatever decisions you're dealing with, from kids to career to romance to something else entirely, therapy can help you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. If you have ever considered therapy, you should definitely give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and that means it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and totally suited to your schedule. Oh man, that flexibility makes such a big difference when it comes to including therapy as an active support system in my life, but in anyone's. Exactly. With BetterHelp, all you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, you're able to switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lovemurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lovemurder. So Billy later claimed that Gene had actually invited him to surprise Nicole. Okay. Chris said that I don't think that this was true, that it was not Gene's idea. I think she would have told Chris. Yes, but when he did show up, she was not going to send him away, obviously. Because Nicole was so, so happy. And at least they were under her roof. Yeah. So she knew what was going on. At the beginning of this trip, it seems like they had a really good time. Like, the teenagers were great. They helped Jean's friend Amanda move. Like, they literally moved boxes and helped her move into a new place. 
They drove around in Billy's new car, of course, as teenagers are wont to do. They played Pictionary with Chris and Jean at night. But behind the surface, tensions were boiling over. Billy had stopped taking his medication. How do they know that? Who knows that? We only know that in hindsight, unfortunately. And I don't know for sure if Nicole knew this for sure. Okay. Did she know he was on medication? Yes. Okay, cool. And it is alluded to later that she may have been aware that he was no longer taking it. But, I mean, she's so in love with him at this point. I'm sure she was like, well, if you don't think you need it, you don't need it, you know? I know. Just, like, blinded by love. We've all been there. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. I would have said the same thing. Having little experience at the age of 16 with people who absolutely need to be on medication. Yeah. I would have been like, well, you know yourself better than anyone else. Of course. I trust you. So Billy had stopped taking his medication by this point. Only two days into the visit, Jean was serving a homemade Sunday supper when Billy made a remark, something like he hadn't had a complete meal in weeks. And Jean said something like, really? And she meant it in total surprise that he hadn't had a complete meal in weeks because she was concerned about him. But because he wasn't on his medication. And because he was already angry at Gene for not giving in to whatever their demands or whims were, he immediately thought that she was insulting his mother. That when she said that, really? That it was her being like, he was reading behind the lines like it was somehow like sarcastic or like saying like, oh, your mom has never given you a complete meal. And so he backpedaled by being like, well, you know, I'm at McDonald's all the time. So I just eat something there. My mom always cooks, but I just, I'm not always home to eat it. And she was like, well, you'll get lots of home-cooked complete meals here. And she was trying to be nice, but he was like, oh, you're saying you're better than my mom? So he was stewing about this. And Nicole does know that. Okay. That whatever she says, he's going to take a different way. But at this point... She was so on his side and she was already so mad at her mom about everything else that she's like, yeah, you're right. Look, she's a bitch. See? So even though it seems like on the surface they're having this nice visit, there was still this underlying tension already in there. And Charlie was there to witness some of this or? Yes. And Charlie's like a 15-year-old kid. So he had his own life, his own friends. Obviously, he's a little checked out, but he must have witnessed enough that he said that to Chris. By the next morning, Billy was not only hating on Jean still. So this is Monday morning. They were also already getting upset about the fact that Billy had to leave on Thursday because he had only taken a week off from McDonald's. So he has to leave on Thursday. So now they're staring down the barrel of they've had this time together and now they're going to have to leave. And so they were talking about how they could stay together. And she's like, well, what if I just left with you? And he's like, oh yeah, the police would come and get you in like two seconds. Your mom would be all over that. And so they're talking about how they could possibly be together. And Billy blurts out something like, well, I guess when your mom dies or if your mom ever died. And they started laughing about it. And so they both would later say it started as a joke. But they started joking about Gene dying and then them killing Gene. No. Nicole later said it started as a joke that the only way I could be with Billy was if my mother was dead. But soon... No one was laughing. And then the teenagers started plotting. So let's fast forward back to Billy and Nicole only a couple days later. You have like two more years and then you can do whatever you want. I know. 
And William Phelps makes this point later in a part we'll get to. Two years, but two years feels like forever when you're 16. I know, but it's really worth like taking someone's life. Okay, so these conversations were happening on Sunday and Monday. Fast forward to Wednesday when Jean is murdered. Jesus, that acted fast. Yes, so they were interviewed by the Nashua police in separate rooms. Right away, bull teenagers are behaving very off to the police, like red flags everywhere. Nicole is extremely upset, but it's more than just shock and grief. She is crying so hard she's hyperventilating. It is beyond normal shock and sadness. Meanwhile, Billy is showing what the cops called extreme nervousness. His legs are bouncing up and down. He is getting up. He's pacing. At one point, he got up and started throwing up in a garbage can. Ooh. No, he should be separated from this crime because this is not even his mom. It's not somebody he's related to. So this extreme reaction is also very telling. Then their alibis don't match up. Billy said that they went bowling and to Dunkin' Donuts. Nicole said that they went to Walmart and to see Pirates of the Caribbean. I remember going to see that. I do too. It was my freshman year of college. You were a senior in high school then, right? Yep. So at that point when they're both so nervous and they're both telling different stories, they know that they're clearly onto something here. 16-year-old Nicole cracked first when confronted with the inconsistencies between her and Billy's story. She broke down and confessed that she and Billy were responsible for Jean's death. Wow. And that that was not all. They had already tried to kill her mother three other times. From Monday? Mm-hmm. The first plot was to lace Jeannie's Monday morning coffee creamer with Dimetap, Ibuprofen, and Benadryl. Now, these are very, so when you hear these, these are like insane teenage ideas of how to kill somebody. They thought that maybe she would overdose or she would get sleepy on her way to work because of all of the over-the-counter medication in her creamer. And accidentally hit someone else and kill them. Yeah. Oh, they didn't care. No. Well, that didn't work. Chris later said that the only thing you could tell was that she had mentioned that she was feeling a little lightheaded. That was the whole thing that why he thought she had fallen. The next morning, Billy put bleach in the coffee creamer, but Jeannie had simply smelled that it smelled weird and just thought the coffee creamer was off and threw it out. So attempt two did not work. After that, they decided during the day on Tuesday that they were going to light her bed on fire. While she was at work, they were trying to figure out how they could sneak in, light her bed on fire while she was sleeping and shut the door so she burned to death. But they found out that her mattress and her blankets were flame retardant, as most mattresses are. A day later, Billy came up with another plot. I think actually this might have been the same Tuesday. Billy came up with another plot. Because they're not in school, right? Because like... No, this is August, so school's out. I just, I can't imagine a time in my teenage years of trying to figure out how many ways to kill one of my parents. No, no. Because that's how you're spending your 16th summer? Well, this is because you're normal. And by normal, I mean statistically normal. Because statistically, teenagers do not spend their time trying to figure out how to kill their parents. Nobody is, like, enacting it. Within 12 hours of joking about it, yeah, no. Go play outside. Go to the movies. (laughs) Go go make out. Like, (laughs) like, Uh, 
go to the drugstore, feel really weird about buying condoms, and then go have sex in the backseat of Billy's new car because that's what teenagers are usually Sims, doing at 16 and 18. Roller coaster tycoon, go buy some caffeine <laughs> pills if you want to be real crazy. Like, come on. Oh, maybe some of that horny goat weed that they have at gas stations that's right by. <laughs> like, there's so many weird things to do that are fun and not dangerous or murderous. Yeah. So, the next plot, M. William Phelps wrote, quote, One might wonder if he had concocted the idea while watching a Roadrunner cartoon that day. It perfectly showed his stupidity and adolescence. They were going to use a clothesline rope. So it's like a thickness of a clothesline, this rope that they had bought at Home Depot, and doused in gasoline as a wick. And they were going to put one of the ends either near or in like the heating oil tank of the home and then douse the rope with gasoline and then light the other end because they thought it would just, the fire would run up the rope and then explode the tank. And it did not work for many reasons, for many engineering reasons, but also because I guess that Nicole got scared. So either she or Billy was supposed to like keep Chris McGowan, who was over, contained to the front of the house or something while the other one did this. But Nicole got scared when Chris started walking into the background. So she gathered up the rope and threw it away. So that wasn't happening. By Wednesday, August 6th, they had reached the last night of Billy's trip. He's supposed to leave the next morning. And it was now or never. So Billy said he had one last plan. He was going to sneak up on Jean in the home and he was going to hit her on the head with Charlie's aluminum baseball bat because Charlie played baseball and he'd seen the bat in the home. And so he's like, I won't let her see me. So basically when she comes to, she'll think that she was the victim of random violence and she'll agree that it's a dangerous place to live and you shouldn't be living there and maybe she'll move the whole family because there was an opportunity for Jean to maybe take a transfer to a place in Massachusetts that was closer to Billy, but it had not happened and Jean hadn't taken the job for whatever reason. They were angry about that too. So he's like, either she'll survive and she'll move your family or let you move or she dies and that's cool too. And at that point, Nicole was like, okay, sure. This sounds like a plan. <sighs> So the police, obviously, while they're interviewing Nicole, stop to read her her rights. Yeah, so she's saying all of this. Yes, she's telling them all of it. And then they did the same in the other room to Billy. And when they confronted Billy with the details Nicole had already spilled about the attempted murders, Billy begrudgingly confessed himself. Now, Nicole was not present for the actual murder, so she could not tell them what had actually transpired in her home. But Billy could, and he did. Well, Nicole flipped through a teen magazine that they had bought across the street at 7-Eleven in Billy's car, Billy went to her house where Jean was plating pizza for Chris and the kids and prepping her own dinner. And Billy said that when he walked in, she was, of course, surprised to see him without Nicole. Yeah. So he then went straight to Charlie's room where he had seen the bat outside of his room and grabbed it. And when he came back, it sounds like she was in the kitchen, but then they were in the living room or it was one of those rooms that you can see both and you're kind of in both. And he said he began talking about baseball, saying, I used to play baseball. I wish I did again. And she was like, oh, you'd probably be good at it. But he starts swinging the bat, like 
not at her. At first, it's just like, he's like, I think I'd be really good at it. And he's like, swing it in the house. And she's like, hey, don't do that. You're getting kind of close to me. You're going to destroy something. Stop it. So she's like, hey, can you put down the bat? This is getting aggressive. Also, where's Nicole? At that point, the phone rang on Nicole's private line because that had been part of her gift. And Billy runs to Nicole's room to grab it. And Jean's, of course, behind him being like, this is a phone in my house. You don't get to answer it. And he answers the phone and it's Nicole. And she's calling him from the 7-Eleven. And she's saying there's a cop at the bank. It sounded like they lived across from maybe like a strip mall. And there was a bank in the strip mall too. And she's like, there's a cop here. I don't know what to do. And he's like, well, is he just getting money from the ATM? And she's like, yes. And he's like, well, then don't worry about it. And... Then at that point, Jean's like, is that Nicole? I want to talk to her. Why isn't she home? Tell her to come home. Put her on the phone with me. But he hung up. So now she's getting upset. Jean said, something's wrong. Why isn't Nicole here? She's demanding to know where Nicole is, why she wasn't with Billy. Billy said, well, she's across the street. And Jean got angry. She was like, well, go get Nicole now or call her back or whatever and tell her she needs to get home. Because she's 16 years old and she's going to eat with us as a family. So go get her. And at that point, Billy was like, well, you can't tell her what to do. You can't tell me what to do. And he got angry about Gene bossing him around or bossing Nicole around. So they start fighting. They start arguing. And Billy would later say that he got kind of like buzzy in the ears, that he doesn't even really remember exactly what she was saying or if she was yelling, that it was just like all Static. going fuzzy yeah. at that point. And that all sensation, all sense gave way to pure beating blood in your head rage. He told police that he felt in that moment that he had reached a place of no return. Billy began swinging the bat at Jean and she must have turned and he connected with her back. It was kind of like her back and armpit area. And he said later that she turned to him very surprised. She said, what the fuck are you doing? It was shocking to her that he was, because at this point it sounds like no matter what they were feeling to themselves or writing in their journals, they had been trying to- Of course. Keep it civil. Appease her. Yeah. Keep it civil because they knew that she was the one who held the keys to allowing Nicole to come live with him. So she is shocked. And after that, Billy hit her in the back of the skull with the bat. The medical examiner later said that the blow had actually cracked her skull, that there was a large fracture when they examined the body. But Jean was a fighter. Oh, my God. So Billy lunged at her at that point. And they fell on the coffee table, and that's why it was broken in half. So it broke in half. They grappled. They were wrestling. He said that they were scratching, that they were kicking. Gene was fighting like hell, and Billy was overwhelmed. Did he have defensive wounds on him? Yes. And she had a, a lot of defensive cuts. We'll get into that. But I'm, like, curious of, I mean, if they're, like— Well, like, it wasn't, like, on his face or anything. It wasn't so obvious that they knew right away that something was wrong. But he was very surprised. She was not a big woman. She wasn't like tiny, tiny, skinny, but she wasn't very tall. She looked like a sweet mom. And he said later that he was shocked, like how hard this was, how hard she was fighting. And he was very angry. It was making him angry how hard she was fighting. That it wasn't easy for him. That it wasn't easy. So he 
got up and he grabbed a steak knife from the counter and he began to stab her over and over again until the knife blade broke off. And it was like apparently it hit one of her bones and snapped. And he had pulled the blade and the handle out at that point. And then he had grabbed a butcher knife and began stabbing her again. But Jeannie managed to get this knife away from him. I mean, she was grabbing it with her hands, like her hands were all cut up and everything. She managed to get the knife away from him and got to her feet and started chasing him with the knife. But unfortunately, this is heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. She slipped in her own blood. And she was the one who had flown through the plexiglass door. So she slipped in the blood and she went headfirst through the glass door. And that's why it was broken. He didn't push her into it. She fell. And of course, at that point, she was stunned and she's deeply injured. And he took that opportunity because the, the knife had flown from her hands when she fell to grab the knife and finish his assault. And he ended up puncturing one of her lungs. And he said that Jean was then struggling to breathe. It was her last breaths. And the last thing he recalled Jean saying was, okay, I'm done. I just can't imagine that. And Nicole's at 7-Eleven. Yep, reading a magazine. So, of course, Billy was covered with blood. So he went and changed his clothes and he washed the blood off of his hands and his arms. But when he got to his car across the street where Nicole was waiting, he still had blood on his face and it had dripped onto the new shirt that he had changed into. So at that point, he sent Nicole back into the house to get him a wet towel. He was like, you go into the house. I'm not going back there. You go get me a towel, make it wet, and get back here so I can wipe off my face. I'm not getting out of this car. And so she was crying hysterically. She didn't want to go. She's like, I can't go. She couldn't face what no. she had allowed to happen. But he made her go in. She had encouraged it, though, right? Yes. And this is the sticking point for Jean's loved ones. This was very difficult for them to deal with because they could think, like, this guy convinced her to go along with it. She was so under his power. But this moment was so hard for them to swallow that she went back into her house, stepped over in order to get to the room. She had to step over her dead mother's bloody carps. And then she went and got the wet towel for Billy, like he had told her. And she went back to his car and said, we have to go to Walmart and buy you a new shirt because there's blood on it. And then they started talking about what they were going to say. And they ended up going to her mother's friend, Amanda's house, the woman they just helped move and like stopping by her house before they went home to like help establish this alibi. So what's hard for everyone to swallow who loved Nicole and loved Jean was that she, after the fact, is participating in all of this. Oh, yeah. So it was very easy to corroborate the horrific confessions. All of the forensic evidence matched everything that the two of them had said. They were like on camera on the Walmart and everything. So they were both immediately arrested. Nicole would be tried as a juvenile at 16, while Billy at 18 would be tried as an adult. The young lovers never 
spoke again after the day they were arrested. Billy felt as though Nicole had betrayed him by confessing to the cops. He was sure that she was going to cut a deal with the state to get him locked up. And I'm sure that legally they weren't allowed to contact each other anyway. But very quickly, Billy's all-consuming, worth-killing-for-love for Nicole turned to hatred. Well, in prison, Billy managed to groom yet another 15-year-old girl. This was the friend of one of his cellmate's girlfriends. Since she was a minor when this all went down, this girl is pseudonymed Tina. Well, apparently Billy had really put Nicole in the rear view at this point within weeks of murdering her mother. Jeez. He had become pen pals with numerous young girls all over New England. But Tina was the one he had fixated upon. She was having issues with her parents. She had been living outside of her home for some reason because of issues. And she was in a vulnerable position. It was very similar to how Nicole had been. She had been 14. He had been 17. Now I think Billy was like 18 or 19. She's 15. And it was like Nicole all over again. He began writing to Tina every single day, 5, 10, 20-page letters multiple times a day. He convinced his aunt to lie to prison officials and say that Tina was his sister to sneak her into the prison so they could see each other. And in these letters, he's telling her, who's a 15-year-old girl, to not wear a bra, to maybe not even wear a shirt, wear a zip thing so you can show me something. You should not wear underwear and skirt and pleasure yourself while you're visiting the prison. There was a lot of sexual fantasy is being written in these letters back and forth. And he, of course, initially told Tina that he was completely innocent, that he was set up, that Nicole was setting him up, that she had another boyfriend. That boyfriend had killed Jean and had nothing to do with him. And this girl, Tina, really believed it. She believed in him completely. And so she was angry with Nicole And just like Nicole before her, they got very serious very quickly. They were talking about marriage. If you want, Tina Rowe, I will get married to you August 1st, 2006, when you get out. Become pregnant November 1st, 2006, and have our first child on August 1st, 2007. So they're planning this life together. But that would only happen if Tina could get word to Nicole not to testify. At that point, Billy was totally controlling Tina, even though he was locked up. And he was saying, you need to get through to Nicole and tell her to drop her testimony. Because if she doesn't testify and I don't testify, it's going to be a lot harder to convict us. So I don't care what you have to do. You can sneak a note into the women's prison this way, this way. If you have to get arrested and sneak in yourself and threaten her, do it. Like he is now telling this 15-year-old. Oh, my God to get herself in a situation where she can get through to Nicole, and that's the only way they're going to be together. Luckily for Tina, she had friends, and she was telling her friends all about this relationship she was having all along. And at one point, she really did ask him point blank if he had killed Jane. And he said, well, you know, I'm just going to tell you the truth now. And he revealed to her that he had, but it did not matter because... He loved her and he wanted to be with her and that she still needed to get to Nicole and tell her not to testify and that if she loved him, she could overlook it. Now, Tina's scared because she really thought he was innocent. So she's telling her friends she's scared. 
Well, her friends decided to go to her parents. Good. And her parents called the police. And then the next thing you know, Billy had not one, but two ex-girlfriends testifying against him at his trial. So Nicole turned 18 years old in June of 2005, well awaiting Billy's trial. And William Phelps wondered in his book if there was some small part of her that wished she had just waited for Billy. This was like you were saying, it was two years. She was now a legal adult. Had she not murdered her mother, she would have been legally free to do whatever she wanted with whomever she wanted. Total freedom. And now because of her actions or inactions, she would not have freedom for decades. Nicole agreed to plead guilty in exchange for her testimony against Billy. She ultimately was not sentenced until well after Billy's trial. So they said, we'll give you this general deal, but we're not going to tell you what it is until after you testify. That's smart. And after, I think in 2008, she was finally sentenced. She was given 40 years total, although wow. she had already served five years at that point, with a few years expected to be shaved off if she got her GED and took college courses. The sentencing judge said the murder of your mother would have never happened without your complicity. Complicity for sure, but was Nicole the mastermind? That would be the question raised at Billy Sullivan's trial in June of 2005, nearly two years after Jean's murder. Billy's attorneys first tried to claim that Billy was incompetent to stand trial due to insanity, but the judge disagreed. Billy was ruled mentally competent because of all the plotting and planning and premeditation. And the defense argued that Nicole had known that Billy was mentally ill and that she had manipulated him into murdering her mother oh. with full knowledge that Billy was off his meds and therefore a ticking time bomb. In closing arguments, Billy's attorney wanted to remind the jury that Nicole was very much a part of this, and she was aware of Billy's condition. He said, this was not just an ill boy. This was a seriously disturbed boy. This was a genetic problem that wasn't going to be cured. He might have had some minor improvement in later years, but these serious illnesses were not going to go away. He indirectly suggested that Nicole had begged Billy to murder Jean and put pressure on him to complete the task attacking her character on all fronts. He reminded jurors that Nicole had been reading a magazine when Billy committed the murders and that she was evil for testifying for three days against him and that they had to remember that she had helped Billy plan the entire crime, not once or twice, but on four separate occasions. Can you imagine, he said, knowing your mother is being killed and you're just reading a magazine article? She's the one that desperately wanted to get out of the house. She's the one that's obsessed with Billy. She's the one who makes the phone call that sets this whole thing in motion. Everything revolves around Nicole. Yeah, but she's not the one that held the knife. She's not the one that killed her mother at the end of the day. I appreciate the hard work, but. I guess like when he was like, she did this, he was like pounding the table too. It was very dramatic. The prosecution reminded the jury that Billy had been the one plotting and planning with Nicole all along. They're like, she was part of it. It's like, are you kidding? Okay, sure. But he's on trial here and he was doing it too. And this was not the result of a mentally ill young man flying off the handle and killing his girlfriend's mother in an unexpected crime of passion that nobody could have predicted. 
he had planned and plotted and premeditated every step of the way from the poisoning attempts to wanting to light her bed or house on fire. And then finally, even after he hit her once with the bat, he could have stopped. He absolutely could have. He made a choice. He even said, I reached the point of no return. Yeah, he was conscious of him reaching that point. And she turned and said, what the fuck are you doing? And he could have said, what the fuck am I doing? And stopped at that point. But he didn't. And then he also, when he broke the first knife, he could have stopped. And there was maybe a chance she could have survived. Every step of the way, he continued to kill and assault this woman. The prosecutor said that Billy's behavior was selfish and self-centered. It was foolish, ruthless, brutal, premeditated, deliberate, but not insane. He committed this murder knowing full well the consequences of his actions. His actions were not the product of mental illness. Well, the jury was inclined to agree, and Billy was found guilty of murder in the first degree and conspiracy to commit murder. It was also a dramatic scene here because Billy refused to attend his sentencing. He was screaming and fighting and he just was like, well, tell me what it is, but I'm not going to go in front of that court and I'm not going to let the judge tell me anything. So it is rumored there was like conflicting reports about how the fact he had to just be essentially shackled to be brought in. But then other people said that he had to be pepper sprayed and literally hogtied to be brought into the courtroom because he was not willing to face his sentencing and the judge. Well, the judge sentenced him to life in prison without the possibility of parole, which I think is, at least at this time, what happened in New Hampshire if you get convicted of first-degree murder. Because I remember we talked about this in the Pamela Smart case. It might be one of those automatic things. I think it's like that in Pennsylvania. Which he probably knew, too. Yeah, which is maybe why he didn't want to face it. He looks a little bit like... Is the name of Casey, the hockey player in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? That's what he looks like in his mugshot. Well, two years after his conviction, Billy's attorneys won an appeal to hold a new trial, not about his guilt, but whether or not he was, in fact, mentally competent. Because the goal was that Billy wanted to spend the rest of his sentence, which was, of course, the rest of his life, in a hospital rather than the prison. Of course you do. Yeah. But again, the court found him competent. And Billy went back to prison where he remains to this day. Jean's loved ones and her fiancé have had a very hard time reconciling the Nicole they knew with the one who helped her boyfriend murder her devoted mother. Chris said she was never in trouble and was actually a very good kid. She was an honor roll student in school, and Jean was very proud of her. She was involved in the school chorus and actually had a very good singing voice. Jean and I would attend her chorus performance together. Jean was always very proud when she saw Nicole on stage. They were as close as a mother and daughter could be. Nicole would go to school and return home and then dive into her schoolwork. And now she was sitting in front of a judge facing murder charges. He said that he could not figure out how they had gotten from point A to point B. Well, Nicole, it seems from the research I've done, is still in prison. And there is a YouTube, I'll put the link on our sources page because this YouTube video of her at 24 talking about her crime and why she was there. And it was clear that she was very sorry. And she said she just, she needed somebody to look at her and tell her 
that they saw her and Billy filled that role and she got caught up in a way that does not make sense to her currently. I think at this point, she's 24, she's more mature, and I don't know if we can make sense of the things that we did as teenagers. The American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry states that the frontal cortex, the area of the brain that controls reason and helps us think before we act, develops later than other parts of our brain. Unfortunately, it develops later than aggression. As a result, teenagers are more likely to act on impulse and engage in dangerous or risky behavior, and they are less likely to consider the consequences of their actions, which I think is why it is incumbent on us to try to relate to them, to see them, and to make sure that they understand that the things that they do could mean that there are permanent consequences not just for themselves, but for everyone. In conclusion, I think I've said this one before, but to quote my chemical romance, teenagers scare the living shit out of me. Yeah, I think you and I are both going to be supporting each other heavily. And (laughs) to all of the parents of teenagers out there currently, past, present, future, we're with you. We are. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye.